podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you are listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy my other show, Red Inca. It's a podcast about stories and issues in cricket, told by the experts who have followed it or the people who've lived them. We've had Dan Norcross talking about cricket commentary, Wright Thompson on his Sachin Tendulkar piece, and a bunch of cricketers like Andrew Balburnie, Tamal Mill, Sean Masood, and Alex Hartley. It's a weekly podcast with a different theme for every show. Two Australians, one a former legend, another a respected captain, got involved when a West Indian player had decided that he would choose to play for a team in a foreign league over representing his country. The two Australians pleaded with him. They understood the finances. But how would it look, choosing money over country? This player eventually relented, and Garfield Sobers decided to play for the West Indies instead of in a Lancashire league. The problem of West Indians having to choose between shoring up their financial positions and playing for the West Indies has always been around. Welcome to Double Century. This week we look at how West Indian cricketers have always had to come to other countries to get the money they deserve. While many believe it is a modern problem, from Leary Constantine, the first West Indian legend, right through to today, it has been a struggle for the West Indian cricketers to get the money their talents should earn. There was an incredible player from the West Indies called Constantine. He toured England twice, while averaging 25 with the bat and 13 with the ball. Though he didn't bowl that much, he was a keeper as well. He made 100 at Lords. Wisden said it was a dashing and faultless display. There is no doubt LeBron Constantine was a player, and luckily for him, he was fit enough to play his last game at 48, meaning he could share the field with his son, Leary. LeBron was known as Old Cons, and he never had a chance to play a test, as the West Indies weren't a test side then. This grandson of a slave had a few sons who showed potential, but only one was Leary. But one West Indian batsman stands out as the most exciting all-round cricketer of the period, perhaps of all time. Leary Constantine, fast bowler, electric field fielder, batsman who could swing the course of a match in half an hour's frantic stroke play. He ended up as Leary, but of course he started as Baron Constantine. Leary's rise in cricket was actually stunted by his father, who perhaps, because he hadn't made money from the game, steered his son towards an office job. Leary's first game had his uncle, and his second was with his father. His style of cricket was not the English way. Much like the early Australians, there was a difference about him. It was a style that would be a gift to cricket for years to come. He attacked. He was reckless. He was beautiful. He was athletic. He's what the West Indies cricket would become. But Leary wasn't about changing the game. He was incredibly pragmatic. He saw cricket as a way to improve his life. England might have still been every bit as racist as Trinidad, but him being a good cricketer there also meant something, that he could transcend his background and his skin colour. After Leary left his first tour to England, which was before the West Indies were a test nation, he had a mission to improve his game. It was his fielding that people really respected. Constantine was like three men in the covers, like a cheetahpus. That's a cheetah-octopus hybrid. He was everywhere. And when his batting or bowling wasn't quite right, he would still get picked just to block out cover. Constantine was smart enough to know that being a good cover fielder wouldn't be enough to achieve his dream of playing as a professional in the UK. So he added pace to his bowling, worked on playing slightly less crazy shots, 
and even trained himself as a slip fielder to conserve energy for his bowling. All of these things that Constantine learned and put into practice would come out when West Indies became the fourth nation to play a test match. But their opening bowler was really there to put out an audition tape. He wasn't looking for test glory. He was looking for a job. But the liveliest contribution of the afternoon came from Constantine, Lancashire's favourite, who compiled 31 in his own unique style. Towards the end of play, England claimed a wicket or two. But it was a case of leather hunting all day for the boys of the old country. Even before the test, Constantine had been a success. He had won a match in seven hits against Derbyshire. He'd made his maiden first-class hundred at Essex. But it was at Middlesex that Constantine left the biggest impact. The crowds came to Lords to see him. In the West Indies' first innings, he entered the wicket well behind the follow-on target. So he smashed his 50 in 18 minutes. A few minutes after that, he was 86. The follow-on had been smashed and he had scored over 50 more than any of his teammates. He then took the new ball in the second innings. Middlesex were bowled out for 136 and Constantine bowled fast. Only the great Patsy Hendren, with his test average of almost 50, had the ability to withstand him, at least for a while. Constantine ended with 7 for 57. Five batsmen were bowled. At one point, he took 6 for 11 in 6 overs. The West Indies had to chase over 250. Their top order all got starts, but kept getting out. At 7, in walked Leary. They still needed more than half the total. Constantine batted for an hour. Apparently, it was exactly 60 minutes. He made 103 in that hour. He broke a bowler's hand in that hour. One of the great hours of cricket history. The hour of Leary Constantine. The West Indies beat Middlesex by three wickets. Years later, Dennis Compton started playing for Middlesex. According to him, the players were still talking about Leary's match. The West Indies lost all three of their tests to England on that tour, all by an innings. Constantine took the first test wicket for the West Indies. Jack Hobbs said it was one of the fastest spells he'd ever faced. And at the end of the tour, Constantine had made the most runs, taken the most wickets and held the most catches of any of the West Indians. After serving on the Sports Council and as BBC Governor, Constantine became the first black member of the House of Lords in 1969. The Times reported a loud, warm growl of hear-hears rolled around the chamber. This is the House of Lords equivalent of members standing up to clap a century maker all the way back to the pavilion. The Lord Speaker, Lord Fowler, said, Lord Constantine marked a watershed for the House of Lords. His arrival as the first black life peer paved the way for many brilliant black and minority ethnic members. It was during this time that Nelson Cricket Club in Lancashire Leagues contacted Constantine and offered him a professional contract. Constantine had done it. He'd earned himself a career. C.L.R. James, one of the greatest writers of all time, cricket or otherwise, and a close friend of Constantine said, He had revolted against the revolting contrast between his first-class status as a cricketer and his third-class status as a man. So he moved to Lancashire to make a career on and off the field for himself. And as James put it, honour and a little bit of profit. His next test was in 1930 at home. Hello, everybody. This is Larry Constantine. I have a tale to relate. It concerns the pride of this land. Events we should celebrate in the whole of the Caribbean. This thing is no mystery. Something to excite we. Rewriting of history by one special man. When the West Indies won their first ever test series... Constantine made a 90 to set up the win, took a wicket to clinch the series, and took 15 wickets at 13. 
None of this is actually why people remember him. That's because of what he did outside the field. During the war, he became a UK government welfare officer. He played in fundraising matches. Before one game, he went to a hotel he had booked in London, the Imperial. When he arrived, they made a fuss about him being black and offered him only one night and not the four he had booked because they wouldn't let black people in the hotel. They eventually let him stay at another hotel around the corner. But Leary wouldn't let it go. He took it to the courts and it made it to Parliament as well and he demanded England start confronting its racist attitudes. During this time, he also helped West Indian migrants with their work conditions and employment. After the war, he coached, commentated and wrote about cricket while he studied law. He then went back to Trinidad as he was still worried about the way that blacks had been treated there, so he ran for parliament and became a minister for communication of Trinidad. Constantine did not seek re-election and instead became Trinidad's High Commissioner to London. In 1962, he was knighted. Constantine lost his post as High Commissioner after speaking out about a Bristol bus company that would not employ blacks. But after that, the House of Lords appointed him as the first black man to receive peerage in 1969. In 1971, he passed away. He was given the Trinity Cross, Trinidad's highest honour, and a state funeral. At Westminster Abbey, they had a memorial for him. All that, it's just so much. I mean, what an incredible life for himself and for everyone else. And I love that he used his cricket ability to change the world. But I also wish that he could have been paid what his talent deserved with the main team, that he didn't have to go to Nelson. That she's got to pick that. That was the right distance. He's hit that out of the ground. That's another one. Goodness gracious me, that peppered the top. You see the chap climbing up there to have a look over the wall. That's another one up in the enclosure. Three balls, three sixes, 58. Oh, he's got that shorter one. It's up again. There it is, bouncing on the concrete. Four sixes in four balls. This makes him 64. Four sixes. Wonder where Nash is going to bowl this one. And that will just carry. Now he's going to be out. Caught out. Oh, he's dropped it. He's over the boundary. Six it is. Five on the trot. Oh, this is incredible. Now, six on the trot's a world record. Been done before, but uh, 70 on the board. And he's done it! He's done it! And my goodness, it's gone way down to Swansea. As good as Constantine was, he was probably nothing compared to Garfield Sobers. He was beyond comprehension. His first 100 was a world record. His best innings was at the MCG in a match that doesn't even really count. He hit six sixes in an over, and people talk about the catches he took like they discovered a new planet. Ray Robertson, the legendary cricket writer, called him evolution's ultimate specimen in cricketers. Sobis was also probably the first globetrotting professional cricketer. His job was playing cricket on whatever continent he was needed. He once played in Rhodesia and said he would have played in South Africa if only people would have stopped giving him grief about it. Recently, I had an argument with a modern cricketer about him and Callis. He couldn't understand how they could even be compared. But when I told him that Sobers bowled twice the amount of overs as Callis, he started to understand it and get it. Sobers was a legitimate frontline batsman and a legitimate frontline bowler. Not just on talent, but game after game, he had to lock down both roles. What a workload to give your most talented player. 
But in order to work as a cricketer, Sobers ended up in Radcliffe. Again, the Lancashire leagues, because they had the money. Imagine LeBron James and Lionel Messi heading off to the north of England to ply their trade. What a remarkable thing he had to do just to get paid for being the greatest cricketer in the world. West Indian cricketers continued to play in English leagues, but they also started appearing in county cricket. We often look at county cricket as a finishing school at times, but from a financial point of view, this was the ultimate. To get a contract here allowed you to be a professional, helping your game and your standard of living. And after county cricket, there was the Packer World Series. Come on, Ozzy, come on. While there was an open warfare from England and Australian boards, the West Indian board allowed their players to be involved, meaning they kept their team, but their players were also paid. So there was a follow-on from the Packer era. As Packer actually wanted a better level of professionalism, he hired the West Indies a trainer called Dennis Waite. The West Indian players still talk about the change he made to them. So here again, the West Indies were getting a chance to be paid what they deserved and also getting better. At a time when cricketers weren't professional in their preparation or on permanent contracts, many of the West Indian cricketers played in England, Australia, and at home. They had training help and they became essentially the world's first ever 12-month cricket team. Former England cricketers Mike Gatting and John Embury successfully challenged a last-minute threat to their rebel tour of South Africa. Anti-apartheid campaigners tried to make them appear as witnesses in a British court case while the tour is on. Also today, protesters disrupted the press conference given by the rebel English cricket team who leave on a tour of South Africa tonight. In the 1980s, cricket teams travelled to South Africa for money. Australia, Sri Lanka and England formed sides. Mike Gatting, Jeffrey Boycott, Graham Gooch, Mike Hazeman were some of the names that were involved. While they were suspended or ostracised at the time, as you may have noticed, they've been pretty much forgiven. And there was also a reason they took this money. Even the English cricketers, the best paid in that time, were not rich. They were getting okay pay for a fun job, but it's a short career. So they were ripe to be sucked in by a good offer. And Leary Constantine aside, most cricketers aren't really experts in politics. The West Indies sent two rebel tours to South Africa. The team included one of the fastest bowlers ever, Sylvester Clark, World Cup final star, Collis King, and one of the original Fast Four, Colin Croft. Alvin Kalacharam was there as well. And the inventor of the off-cutting slow ball, Franklin Stevenson. These are proper players, and their international career stopped because of these tours. Many struggled to get any work afterwards. Some of the rebel players became homeless, others became drug addicts, and even the best of them ended up as outsiders. Perhaps the most notable is Colin Croft. Croft would have been remembered as a legend, a brutal, fast legend, a man who bowled wide of the crease aimed the ball at a frightening angle towards the batsman. In 27 tests, he took 125 wickets at 23. He was an absolute monster, and he, I am sure, would have gone on to be a legend. Instead, he's the face of the unforgiven. It wasn't that long ago he was working in a supermarket. And when asked about the Rebel Tours, Viv Richards said, I'd rather die than lay down my dignity. And I don't believe anyone who knows him believes otherwise. But Viv was a political person. Most of them were just normal cricketers trying to get paid. And in the end, it cost them way more. Let me just say what a Colpac player is. A Colpac player is eligible to sign for a county cricket club in England only after he's given up the right to play for his country. What is a Kolpak ruling? You have to go back to 2000, to a Slovakian 
international called Maros Kolpak. He was a handball player playing second division handball in Germany. It was ruled by the German Handball Federation who stipulated that only two non-European Union players could play in that league. And now it has happened again, at first with the Kolpak situation in county cricket, and then with T20. Tino Best has suggested racism when it comes to the fact that there aren't more West Indians on Colpac deals. And he might be right, but it also probably has something to do with the fact that at that time, the West Indians didn't have a lot of great first-class cricketers. What they had was an incredible amount of T20 cricketers. So only 10 West Indians were given Colpac contracts, whereas the entire T20 system is full of West Indians. And most of the Colpac players were experienced, well-known West Indian cricketers. Not automatic starters in the test teams anymore, or maybe ever, but they were as much used for their experience at the international level as they were their skills. So guys like Corey Collymore, Otis Gibson and Ravi Rampal are great examples of Colpac players. But the Colpac issue wasn't that big a deal for West Indies cricket because it was only 10 players. And at that stage, T20 cricket took off in a far bigger way. Gone! Bring the balls back on the field, because that one's out of here. High and handsome from Gale. Anything else? Oh, yes. That's him. That's what they come to see. Well, catch that one. We tend to think of the West Indies as a group because of cricket. But obviously, each island, and even the non-islands, is a bit different. It was Trinidad that first worked out T20 cricket, and that started before the Champions League where we started to notice them. Wind ball is a game of 12 overs with a slightly lighter ball. You can read about it in Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wilde's Cricket 2.0. But essentially, it's a game of cricket where you have to smash the ball, and so it was of little surprise, looking back, that Trinidad were the place that seemed to get T20 before everyone else. And these were the days when Chris Gale was overlooked for the IPL draft. But after Trinidad Gale and the first World T20 win for the West Indies, it was a free-for-all. Now young West Indies cricketers are given IPL trials often before they've even played in the CPL. And for the first time, the money is big. There is now an entire industry around these players, agents, trainers, physios, dietitians, because of what they are worth. Because of the free market of cricket, they are finally getting what their talents are truly worth. But it comes at a cost, and that has been the amount of time they play for the West Indies. None of this gets into the political issues of West Indies cricket, but many of them were made worse by the fact that players now had power. They could go somewhere else and get paid more all the time around the world. The West Indies team essentially became a place to get notice for T20 jobs, and this led people to call them mercenaries or saying they turned their back on their nations. I think, if anything, this podcast has proved that that was a nonsense idea back then when Leary did it, and it's a nonsense idea now. What has changed is the market for them. Leary Constantine, Garfield Sobers, those in county cricket, the Packer guys, the Rebels, they've all had to make a living, and some chose wisely and others less so. But in the end, you only play this game for a short time, and if this is your chance at providing for yourself or your family, you have to take it. When I was the general manager of the St. Lucia Stars, I had a cricketer from the West Indies trying to get a CPL job by calling me weekly. Now he knows I'm no longer with St. Lucia. But he also knows that I talk to coaches a lot, do consultancy for teams and analysis at times. So now he only calls me once every fortnight. This guy's a good cricketer, but the position he plays happens to be not massively in vogue in T20 cricket at the moment. And there is a player in his national level who is just better than him. And he's getting on now. And he knows that hitting up his phone is as important as what he does on the field. 
He would love to represent his country and the West Indies, but he's also over 30 and he has no other skills. So if I offered him a chance to represent an Iranian 11 for a decent wage, he'd be on the first flight. That doesn't make him a mercenary, just a man with talent who needs to make money from them in order to survive. Unfortunately, that is where West Indies cricket has been for too much of its history. These are not mercenaries. These are cricketers. Double Century is a podcast based on my book, Test Cricket, The Unauthorised Biography. It is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the entire thing exist, and our fact-checkers are Bertie Moores and Abhishek Mukherjee. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so please help out there if you can. The links are in the show notes, thanks to everyone who already does. This is our first season, and there will be 11 episodes in all, so please help share and review to get this podcast out there. Thank you for listening. Podcast Network.